0: Welcome to Diner Talks with James Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end With friends we never want to leave Over food we probably shouldn't be eating Hi, friends. What's going on? Welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James, y'all. We got my boy Ross Zabo coming out here in just a minute, and I'm super pumped for you all to meet him because he is an incredible human being. Uh, before we bring him out, though, y'all, I just want to I just want to let you know that I'm still trying to figure out what a what a name for our people are. What what should we be called, listeners? Uh, what do what do you want to be called? You want to be a, a diner guest, a diner patron? That sounds weird. Should we be the the milkshakers? Should we be the, I, I don't know, the om, letters? I don't know. I'm just making random things up at a diner right now, y'all. But I would think it'd be fun if we could come up with a cool name for our community. So if you could do me a favor, uh, head over to Instagram, uh, follow Diner Talks with James, shoot me a DM. You don't even have to follow, but you can just shoot me a DM uh, and let me know uh, what you think we should be called. That would be super helpful, y'all. Always trying to build community on here. All right, y'all, let's jump into this episode. My guest is a longtime friend of mine. His name is Ross Zabo. Maybe one of the coolest people I know, maybe one of the most influential people that I know, and maybe one of the men with the greatest hearts that I know. Uh, He is an award-winning pioneer for the mental health movement. He's been talking about mental health since before it was cool to be depressed and have anxiety. Take that. Uh, But but honestly, he's really been influential in this movement. It's incredible. He's a former director of the Outreach of the National Mental Health Awareness Campaign. He's written two books. He's spoken to over 2 million people. He shook President Biden's hand and has the photographic proof to show you. Uh, He is an incredible human who also did the Peace Corps in Botswana. Because why not do the Peace Corps in Botswana? He's currently serving as a wellness director at the Geffen Academy at UCLA, and he's the CEO of the Human Power Project. More importantly, he is my friend, and he is a man who I have great respect for. He's helped me through some tough times in my own life, and I'm very grateful. I'm super excited for you all to meet my guy, Ross Zabo. What up,
1: dude? What's up, man? That's probably the the best introduction I've,
0: I've ever had. So uh, thanks, man. I'll take it. I will take it to the bank. <laughs> my man, good to see you. Now, normally, nowadays, you know, you're you're out in L.A. and I uh, I'm I'm in Minnesota. You know, like I do. And uh, the only way I see you is on the internet. And typically, it is sweaty selfies of you post run. And so it's good to see you not glistening as much right now, my man.
1: yeah no it feels good to uh not
0: be running it's great to just be sitting it's nice (laughs) one of the greatest quotes that suzanne robolata my mother uh has ever said she said james i just fucking love to sit and i respect my mom a lot for that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh,
1: (laughs) could be a bumper sticker right there yeah,
0: yeah, that's a power quote right there. Uh, <laughs> Ross, my brother, uh, I'm super excited to see you, man. Uh, we are both a, a very busy humans. Uh, and so anytime we get some time together, I'm always greatly appreciative of it. You and I have shared a couple of, uh, strong meals together and, uh, and, and some, some great conversations, but Ross, here's how I typically start the conversations off here in the diner is that I know, you know, you're, you're from back East and that's, that's, you can tell by your delightful wit, sarcasm and sass. And, uh, and so you're, you're, a, a pennsylvania boy um and uh and so you know your way around a diner now uh, which which i also respect mm-hmm. about you what do you have a go-to diner meal when you're back east with the family
1: so back in the day uh in the late night um you know we're going to talk about mental health and you don't become an advocate without some like you know struggles um <laughs> in my struggle days i was always a like 3 a.m. after the bar circus fries guy. Um, mm. For those of you who don't know what a circus fries is, it is cheese fries with gravy. Uh, I don't know what would happen if I tried that now. Um, <laughs> so I think when I go home, I'm usually a standard like breakfast combo dude eggs over easy, mm-hmm. pancakes, bacon, hash browns. Toast because I like to eat my pancakes without egg on them, and like use the toast to get the egg, uh, sure, yeah. and That's then like, <laughs> and then a milkshake. You know what I mean? That's my diner kind of go-to meal.
0: That I mean that is. A rock star diner move right there. That is well played. Uh, (laughs) I'm here for everything that you just said. I judge people. And uh, one of my best friends does this. And I judge him. Uh, And he takes his eggs over easy and slides them on top of his stack of pancakes. He sticks the bacon in between the pancakes and goes to town. That's not how you're supposed to do it. (laughs) It's incorrect. It's (laughs) just incorrect.
1: Uh, also first, first time I had my wife, uh, she had not been to a Pennsylvania diner. I got some Turkey gravy, which, you know, is like a light, I don't know, is it fluorescent green? Is it yellow? (laughs) (laughs) She
0: did not, she did not eat the diner Turkey gravy. So, you know, wow. Wow. You know, I mean, it's true. It's true that we put our partners through tests, whether we choose to admit it or not. But they don't. It's okay if they fail a couple of them. We keep them around anyway, uh, and, and for they stick around. Let's be honest, and we're grateful for them. <laughs> uh, I love that, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, it's interesting because you know, as a New Yorker, I love to make fun of New Jersey, and then I just never talk about Pennsylvania. And uh, I did not know that the fries that you described are called circus fries in Pennsylvania. Those are called disco fries in Jersey. And it's just called fries mm. with cheese fries with gravy in New York, which isn't fun. And I'll admit that, but I didn't know that they were called uh, circus fries. That's a fun fact.
1: That's yeah. It. Yeah. Pennsylvania does a lot. Right. Um, that's why I moved out when I was 18 and that's uh, it.
0: Yeah. My- <laughs> You're still still a proud Phillies fan, though. Still a proud still a Philly sports guy. No. Oh, I'm a Mets fan. <laughs> I'm
1: a Mets fan. Call me a oh, Phillies fan. I love Mets with you. I, How, I you, gonna, how messing are you gonna say we're you. friends? gonna love with You're gonna say we're friends. You're gonna introduce me
0: as a friend and then say I'm a <laughs> Phillies fan. Oh, no. well, I don't know. Well, because that's what friends do, they mess with each other. I appreciate you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, it's the best because they're in the, the same league, too, which is even more fun. Uh, the, a league, by the way, that no teams are over 500 right now as we currently speak. Um, but anyway, that's fine. That division will get its stuff together. Uh- <laughs> Ross, uh, I um, <laughs> uh, I appreciate you so much, dude. And the work that you do is incredible. You do a, a pretty much all of your work is devoted to mental health. And, and so mental health is not one of those fields that, you know, when some kids are saying, I want to be a firefighter, and other people are like, I want to be a race car driver. You're not like, I want to advocate for the mental health of my fellow humans. Right? Like, that is not... <laughs> it's not like you weren't that kid in kindergarten. And so I'm curious what was what was the original dream when you were younger? What were you uh what were you going after?
1: So uh I was uh, on the hard track of either politics or mm-hmm. I wanted to become like a news anchor. Um that's where I was going. I was mm-hmm. origi- my original major in one of my college my original freshman year was political science and then when i went back a third time it was communications
0: (laughs) (laughs) so nice he did it thrice (laughs) yeah so that was the original goal uh politics or news Okay, there it is. There it is. But mental health came into your world. When when did uh, when did your passion switch? When when was was that in? Uh, is it college experience, high school? When when did that when did that become a thing that you are You're suddenly like, you know what? I really I need to point the ship at this. This matters, and I'm excited about doing this work.
1: Well, I, I had two kind of critical moments. One, uh, I was hospitalized for uh, attempting to take my own life when I was a senior in high school, and at the time. I wasn't on like anyone's radar. I was president of my class and a varsity basketball player and like had the huge college resume everybody would want. But, you know, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder uh, before my junior year and then went into a major uh, depressive episode in my senior year. And when I got out of the psychiatric ward, uh, a lot of things shifted in my school. And I went from being the like cool guy to the guy that was called a psycho and a crazy kid and was made fun of. And so uh, I had a moment in my senior year where I was like, this isn't funny to me. I want to start talking about it. So I actually started speaking publicly about my experiences with bipolar disorder when I was 17. Um, and that was the first critical moment. The, the second one was uh, when I went back to college at age 22. Yeah. This would be the third, the third venture. Sure. Um, To college. I, I looked around and I was like, when I was in high school, we had full school assemblies about drugs and alcohol and drunk driving and sex and all this other stuff, but nobody ever had a full school assembly to talk about mental health. And so I researched if anyone was doing it. No one was doing it. And so I started my own nonprofit organization with the goal of creating full school assemblies where you teach people about mental health. And then like, from there, it kind of just like the path is wild. You know, it's a very, it it escalated quickly. Um, But those are the (laughs) two most kind of meaningful moments for me.
0: Yeah. That's powerful brother. And thank you. uh, Thank you for sharing a, a little bit of your story here with us as well. I know there's, there's so much more depth in there and it, it is, uh, what two two extremely powerful moments the moment in high school uh i, I love the way that you spoke about it uh just with uh with the honesty of like you know i was uh i, I attempted to to out my life after i left psych ward i came back and all of a sudden i was known as the psycho and i mean what right. a, what a what a tough time I mean that's always a tough thing to be labeled as um, but like high school especially the the complete switch from the the hot shot varsity basketball player to all of a sudden the quote unquote freak right like I mean what a uh, what a powerful switch to have to undertake and I don't know if a lot of people go through something like that and come out of it with we need to talk about this. I think a lot of people go through that um, and and come out of it feeling worse and maybe reattempting taking their life or spiraling down or running or uh, or, or leaving town or, or whatever it is, I mean, at least at a minimum transferring schools, right? Um, where do you think your... I don't know, fortitude came from or your stubbornness, or I don't even know what word you would talk about to describe it in that moment uh, that, that you're like, no, I'm, I, we need to talk about this. I I have a pretty weird biological combination
1: of not picking up on like social cues and um, also just being really linear. I will say Um, my wife still is like, you know, (laughs) the best story is she was at this like, party she really loved and uh she texted me and was like hey can you pick me up right and then uh like nine minutes later i was like i'm outside and she was like no i i wasn't asking you to come now uh i was (laughs) asking like
0: in general (laughs) can,
1: (laughs) can you pick me up um i think that there was uh there was definitely, look, my childhood environment was difficult for many reasons that were no fault were mainly biological problems. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there was an element in my family that was like you do what's right and you you fight for what's right. And at the time in high school like everyone who was calling me a psycho was drinking as much as I was, was driving as drunk as much as I was, was as destructive as I was, but my, my thing had a name. And so the judgment came from the, the, the label. And, you know, I visited my oldest brother in a psychiatric ward when I was 11. So I didn't see this as an issue that had as much stigma because I had been around it since I was a kid. And and true to form, when I shared my story publicly in high school, everyone else shared their story. So uh, like, yeah. un- unintentionally, I learned at a young age, like, hey, if you share your story, it opens other people to sharing their stories.
0: Mm, yeah, right. That vulnerability begets vulnerability uh, kind of moment for sure. And I I also grew up in a household that stressed doing the right thing, right? Like I, my father was big on on respect and 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 taking care uh, of each other and making sure, especially of elders, um, and then also. Uh, I also grew up in a house that was, they were extremely civically engaged. My mom was the president of every society in my hometown, the historical society, the garden club, the civics association, right? Like my mom was a, it was a full-time volunteer and it uh, was an incredible human, but did it not for any shine. She wasn't like, I got to get in the newspaper, right? Like it was never anything. It was just, you just do the right thing, right? There is an issue. People ask your help. You show up when you, when, People ask for help, you help them. And so, uh, so doing the right thing was always a really powerful uh, through line in my childhood as well. Uh, and I think there is something to come in from a household like that. I'm, I'm wondering, are there any lessons that you remember, uh, you know, a, a parents or, or somebody else who, who took care of you when you were younger? Are there any lessons that still stick with you today from that, like, just do the right thing kind of period? You know, I mean, my dad was always honest.
1: Uh, he was an insurance salesman my entire life. He started the year I was born. And uh, he just had a really good ability to connect with other people in a way that they trusted him. And my dad was a, an emotional man who always showed up. It didn't mm-hmm. matter what was happening, he, he would show up, he would be there for everyone. And so I think um seeing that uh, as an example of what being a man could mean was, was helpful. I think, um, you know, I also got rewarded. I, I could have told that story in high school and had it backfire in like an epic way yeah. and then been like oh man i'm never gonna do this again right but there was a male teacher who also rewarded it. It was like keep coming back keep sharing your story i believe in you i care about you um so i think those those kind of role models were were really beneficial
0: yeah yeah that's huge uh, some of those individuals that, uh, this is, those one individuals that kind of kick, come by, come by the swing that you're on and give you another push, right? Just like keep going. Uh, you're doing the right thing. Uh, yeah, I, I love that, man. I love that. The, uh, It's funny because in high school, uh, in middle school and high school is when I got into some really dark thoughts as well. I I repeatedly have thoughts, had thoughts about like, well, no one's going to come to my funeral. And like, I had a lot of dreams, reoccurring dreams of me. My funeral was just my parents and my brothers. And they were just kind of like, uh, you know, they weren't really paying a lot of attention and there was nobody else at my funeral. I was like, nobody cares, right? No one cares about mm-hmm. you. You're alone. No one would miss you. No one would. And I'm, I'm fortunate that that's as dark as the thoughts got. I never came up with the plan of removing myself or anything like that. And, uh, and I, I feel fortunate that for whatever reason, it never got that dark. Um, but it didn't, uh, but I definitely had a lot of thoughts of like, if I wasn't around, nobody would notice. Um, and, uh, it's interesting is in those moments I didn't know who to turn to or what to turn to. And there wasn't anything, you know, like, you know, Sesame street told me to love myself. Uh, but I didn't really know what that meant. Right. <laughs> and, and uh, anyway. there's no, there's no knowledge, right. One thing that, you know, when we were just talking before you were talking uh, be- before we got on air, now uh, you said uh, you said, you know, in, in schools, and especially elementary schools or middle school, right? There's there's PE physical education, but there's no ME, there's no mental education um, or mental mm-hmm. health education and whatnot. And uh, I know that I would have benefited from that, right? Like my sense of self worth, I can that I still struggle with today. I can pinpoint back to those handful of years where I believed what was said about me what was said to me and i let i let those thoughts in and i didn't try to rewrite them and said i believed them and held on to them and accepted them as truth And i still battle unlearning some of those things today you know 20 uh, 25 30 years later right and and so there is so much power in knowledge but yet that knowledge is not something that we are giving kids today yet That's something that you have now kind of shifted the game on a little bit at the Geffen Academy. But I'm curious, you know, why do you think let's talk about first, why don't we teach those things more frequently and uh, and more head on just to kids?
1: Well, I think what what has happened in a lot of schools is the, the question has turned to what will the school do? And schools feel pressured to fill the role of parenting, fill the role of like. Uh, every, everything for a kid. And the reality, at least what I've seen is there is at least one person in every school who does want to help kids in, in with their emotions and their mental health, but we haven't found a systemized way to really like teach it. So the barriers are having space in a school schedule, having someone who could teach it, And then also uh, what to teach, right? So like, those are the biggest barriers. Uh, What we're doing at my school is we have a class where kids learn about their mental health once a week, every week, from grade six through 12. And Mm -hmm. you can't teach about mental health without talking about the systems that destroy it. So we also have to talk about systemic racism, the patriarchy, the college application process, which it doesn't matter if you tell kids not to stress out, that that process, it, like it's designed it's to harm them. It's crazy, yeah. Right, and then we do a lot of work on healthy relationships, healthy sexuality, identity, gender, sexual orientation, all of those things. So, you know, for me at least, we're in a position where we can approach education about Everything that affects mental health, but I would say that most schools are in a position where they could do the basics, uh, and and that's our goal. This summer, we're doing a mental health teacher training institute where we're going to start teaching other trainers how to do teaching other teachers how to do what we do.
0: Yeah, that's powerful. That's really powerful. The I'm wondering. I mean, first off, the fact that you all talk about it once a week is incredible. And yes. Uh, uh, you can't just start to talk about mental health and just be like, everybody needs to feel better. And here's maybe why you feel sad and point at the chart of which smile you are, right? Like you can't, like, those things are all (laughs) fine entry points, but that's not where we stop. And I love that you all take on the courageous approach of like, you know, we got to talk about the systems that got some of us here, um, or ma- mainly all of us in some way, shape or form, even if we are privileged and that we benefit like myself, right, benefit from the patriarchy. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm not still affected by it in some mental way and it doesn't affect me. We'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit more and a little bit about male friendships and, and mental health and men uh, in particular. But the the idea that we could take one class one hour a week and talk about it is and starting it at sixth grade or younger or or where any at any point let us start because currently there's no starting is beautiful. So my I guess a question for you is that you know, what does some of that training look like? Like, what are you, I guess, what are you teaching these individuals about as far as, cause I think even just learning about some of that knowledge I could, and, and, and listeners could start to think about like, oh, I've never thought about something in that way. Or like, it's almost like in what you're teaching these teachers to do are also things that we as regular fellow solo beings could also start to put into use.
1: Yeah, and and first off, you know, just to reinforce your point, we we have to stop telling teenagers that they have to have their mental health figured out. It's mm. it's not realistic. Adults don't have their mental health figured out, so it's not about having a perfectly balanced stress and getting sleep perfectly every night and like being able to communicate and everything else. It's about learning small skills that you can build during that second largest period of brain growth that you can continue to attempt to help balance your mental health throughout life Mm -hmm. and that is i think one of the most important messages we can give if we hold anyone to the standard of you have to have your mental health figured out until we actually take down the systems that damage our mental health like all of them we can't keep saying that you have to have your mental health figured out beyond that there are a a couple of things that that people can do. They can use a common language around mental health that compares mental health to physical health that normalizes mental health instead of isolating mental illness. So like, Mm. for example, when you think about physical health, the messaging you get is you do not need to eat healthily until you get diabetes. Like, we're pretty proactive in saying eat healthy exercise if you get diabetes or something else here's how you take care of yourself but if you think about mental health the way we frame it a lot of times is you should seek help once you have a problem and Mm. and it's not preventative or proactive like you don't wait until you have a physical health disorder to go to the gym you go I mean, there I do, preventatively. I do do COVID. that with
0: the dentist, though. With the dentist, I kind of do that, though. I'm not, I'm not supposed to. I know right. I'm not, Ross. Right. You can yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true.
1: We, especially as men, do it with doctors. But we don't do it when it comes to physical health. And if we do, we at least know that yeah. if we went to the gym, we wouldn't be judged for exercising in the same way that people can be judged for expressing their their feelings or their mental health. So, just from a baseline, people need to have a common language and definition around mental health. How we talk about it, uh, you know, you know the difference between a sprained ankle and a broken leg, but very few people know the difference between stress and an anxiety disorder, or a breakup and clinical depression. So, the language, the baseline elements that we use, is something every school. Could do. Um, beyond that, I, you know, the, the number one way to lessen stigma in, in from an evidence-based perspective is when people with mental health issues share their stories. Mm-hmm. So, what we're really gonna hone in on in the training is empowering teachers to learn how to safely tell their personal stories and experiences with mental health, not only safe for them, so that they can manage it, but also safe for the audience to hear it. And that is, you know, a little bit more uh, complex.
0: Yeah, (laughs) just a little bit for sure. Yeah. uh, First off, I love the idea of trying to come up with common language. I literally have never thought about uh, what you just spoke on as far as, uh, you know, we don't tell people like, eat whatever the hell you want till you get diabetes, um, right? Like it's very much, it's a proactive approach. And and you're right, we're not currently being proactive about mental health. Uh, and uh, and so that was a really cool astute point. Um, and, and it's as we start to talk about mental health, it also goes back to what you were sharing earlier, where it's like once you started sharing your story, other people started sharing their stories, and we normalized it. We realized mm-hmm. that maybe we're okay, uh, maybe we're right, or maybe that maybe there is no is no there is no such thing as normal. And so, mm-hmm. uh, but sharing those stories. Is very important, but as you just alluded to, there's a way to do it, right? This this phrase of trauma dumping. Mm. Um, we can't just come in here and I mean, Brene Brown talks a lot about that uh, vulnerability. For the sake of vulnerability, isn't good, right? And just coming out and being like, here's everything that happened to me. I'm vulnerable. Look at me go, right? Like that's not vulnerable. <laughs> Um, right. There's a big uh, in the professional speaking world. They talk a lot about share from the your scars, not your wounds and things like that. And I think there's a little bit of give and take in that uh, theory as well. But, you know, I'm curious to hear, you know, as you as you think about this and as even, you know, parents that are listening to this or partners that are listening to this. uh there's so many places where we can share our story and, and help, help the person across the diner table from us uh, feel a little bit more normal or a little bit okay or that they can share. How do you recommend individuals share their stories or when to share their stories?
1: Yeah. And so let me draw a difference between if you're in a classroom, your approach should be a public health approach Yeah, where you are trying to educate people. If you're in a relationship or a friendship or a family, y- you should still have some of those elements. But like that, that's where you need to lower the walls a little bit to connect mm. the The most dangerous things I see happen in a classroom is somebody uh, is sharing therapeutic information mm. with students who are not up to handle. That, right. And so here are the tips. I know people, you know, we like bullet points. Here are the bullet points. (laughs) (laughs) Choose a story that you have already processed. That's my language. So, Mm -hmm. like, do not be in a classroom sharing a story for the first time. Choose a story Mm -hmm. that you have already processed, that you are comfortable with, that no matter what their reaction is, it will not affect you, okay? Mm -hmm. That's That's the first part, right? The second part is choose a story that is relevant to the lesson you are teaching. So like if I'm teaching a lesson about drug and alcohol prevention, then I can share like, Hey, I started drinking when I was 12 because I went through a lot of trauma. There was heavy addiction in my family. I used it as a coping mechanism. It destroyed my adolescent life. I was able to find other coping mechanisms. That is very different. Than me trying to be cool and being like, "Oh, you guys drink? I drank. I drank a lot. I won a lot of <laughs> drinking competitions. I used to drink in the woods. I used to drink in my van. Uh, one time, I got so messed up, don't remember things. Like, not relevant to what you're teaching, no. right? And then the, you know, the, there's there's many other parts. Another part is uh, don't share your story for validation in your classroom. Mm -hmm. You, if you are seeking validation from your students, they are not your students anymore. If you're, if you need validation from them, then you have crossed a boundary that is going to make them think they need to take care of you or make you feel like you constantly need their approval, which is not going to work, especially from a public health setting. Uh, Mm -hmm. I could keep going if you want me to, but uh, you know that's, those are, those that's one of the reasons. Ones.
0: Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I couldn't be a high school teacher is because I desperately needed validation from them, and they weren't giving it to me. And I was like, this is not healthy for my self esteem. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like I'm being 100 percent I got in the Okay. Yeah. I got right, in the yeah. I got in the classroom. Right. I got so I have a I have a Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology. Um around my junior year. My teachers are like, you're putting too many jokes in your scientific papers. This may not be for you. And I was like, I think you're right. Um and and so I was like, all right, well, now what am I gonna do? I'm in my junior year. Uh I still like science, but I I actually I don't want to do write research papers for the rest of my life. And so what am I going to do with this degree? Um, and my GPA is mediocre at best at a 2.73. And so, like, where am I actually going right now? It's like, oh. I could become a teacher. I had a lot of great teachers um, and and maybe I could be a teacher because, you know, maybe I don't want to do all the research, but I can get other people excited about it and, and drive their passion. And so I was like, all right, let me take the education classes. And I started taking those classes, got into some classrooms, taught some lessons. And I was like, oh, this is real hard. I am not good at this and you are not laughing at my puns, which deserve laughter because uh, they're gold. And uh, and so, yeah, but no, truth be told, um, like I was like, I'm not getting a sense of validation from this moment and people who really need validation shouldn't become teachers. And so I was like, this isn't the right path for me. So that is 100% true story. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I, I mean, your honesty is great. I think there are a lot of teachers in society who need that validation from their students. And it's just not a healthy dynamic. It's definitely not a healthy dynamic if you're going to talk about health. Uh, you, you need to be vulnerable with boundaries, you know, and and that's a, a really critical piece of of the training. Um, you know, but I think those elements of have you processed it? Is it relevant to the lesson you're teaching? No are you putting up enough boundaries to protect yourself and the students? And uh, you know, how do you incorporate that in a lesson? I, I think what I've also seen too, is like there are millions of teachers out there who had a, a, a good life and, you know, bless them, but they can also share the stories of their friends or their families or like other things they've gone through, but it does, it does need some, uh, some guidance.
0: Yeah. No, for sure. Um, it's not, It and it is uh, It is a, a skill worth practicing, for sure. Don't just get in there and start <laughs> be like, all right, let's give this a shot. I went to a seminar over the summer taught by an attractive man. Uh, here we go, uh, right? Like, like, it's just, it is a skill worth practicing. <laughs> but here's the reality. Like,
1: what schools lack is that human connection. And so- they do need to connect to something. It's just, uh, you know, what what do they connect to, and and how does it how does it benefit the overall educational goals? Now that we've done this for four years, it, and I've watched my ninth graders. You know, they're, this we're having our first graduating class. I can see, you know, the the major benefits and the challenges, and you know, kind of a much deeper understanding that I would have ever had if I didn't teach in a school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's so true. Uh, people love to tell teachers how they should do their jobs if they never taught anything. Right. Like <laughs> I think, I think, you know, the big joke at the beginning and throughout the pandemic was like, we don't pay teachers enough, you know, now that everybody's homeschooling their kids and seeing the teachers and like watch, listening to class on the zoom or, or whatever. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's finally, uh, I don't think anything's necessarily changing, uh, for that. I don't know if people are voting any differently. Um, uh, sadly, but still uh, it is definitely uh, it is definitely a profession that takes a ton of skill and you don't know it until you actually get in the classroom for sure. Um, and that's I mean I know yeah. my respect for teachers immediately went up during that semester that I taught a bunch of uh, classes to that uh, poor, those poor high school students in North Carolina. Um, and I was like, wow, this is in- way harder than it looks.
1: Yeah, and I think that's something else that needs to be mentioned. Uh, currently, you keep seeing memes and all these things around uh, the country saying, like, well, kids need a class where they learn about their mental health like they would learn about their physical health. And that in a very idealistic situation. It is not easy because it's yeah. assuming that kids want that class, that they would trust the students in the class to have that class. And that we would have educators who can teach it. And so, um, you know, I think we're getting there, but it's, uh, it's much easier to say than to actually do. And even for me, for someone who had spent my entire life educating people about mental health, creating an actual class to do it once a week is, uh, it's a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, another course that they always say that, 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 Uh, kids should be taught um, is around uh, financial literacy, right? And that is a way straighter line, right? Like that is like, we can teach those skills a lot easier. We can set that class up a lot quicker than a mental health education class uh, uh, for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, And uh, yeah, I agree with you, man. I agree. So I want to take it out of the classroom setting for a minute. Uh, And, you know, I think I want to come back to the question of, when we are having conversations with people that we love that we see that are struggling or potentially the patterns that they normally are in, they're out there, their routines are whacked. Is there, uh, cause they're just, they're, they're going through something right there, whether it's a funk, whether it's an episode, whether it's a break, whether it's a who knows, right. And, and no one knows. <clears throat> um, but, uh, there is still a lot of power in sharing our stories in those moments in relationships and in, mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 amongst friends and stuff like that. And one area where I don't see this nearly enough is with male friendships, um, and, and men's mm-hmm. relationships with each other. Um, men are, uh, men, I think we're getting better, uh, but I think men in general are taught to be internal processors Right, the thing is that men are taught not to feel. I don't, I don't necessarily know if that is exactly it. It is in some cases, but I think men are taught to be internal processes. Right, you figure it out. You don't present complaints. You present solutions. You don't present uh, a process. You invent. You 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 present a product. Right, um, and I think that is hurting men a lot. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on men and mental health do you see progress being made um, and and I'd just be curious to have a conversation with that a little bit about you nope a, with that a little bit with you <laughs> <laughs> no I I completely agree I you know
1: I think I think what happens is you grow up as a little boy and you get told that you can feel that you can cry like that that, that happens for a majority of, of kids. And then you get to be around age eleven or twelve, and you see that if you cry, it has consequences. Like that stage of development in middle school for most boys is the first time where you're like, "Oh, you you said it was okay to cry, but now they're making fun of me, or no one's talking to me, or you're not hugging me." Um, And I think that's where that internal process starts, James. I think. Once you see how society is treating you for those emotions, your you start thinking like, "Oh, well, then I gotta I gotta figure this out on my own because I don't know who I can trust." And it is also around the same time where uh, a young boy's trust is broken, um, mm-hmm. either by friends, somebody like you know, uh, told someone you did something, or by uh, you know you start dating. Uh, something happens, and so that time period between ages of twelve and twenty-five is when most people develop coping mechanisms, communication skills, internal voice for life. I often joke with people that being an adult is just trying to undo adolescence. Like you're just like, oh yeah, no, I started this pattern when I was eighteen, and I now I'm forty, and I still do the exact same thing. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think that it's certainly getting better that we are promoting men and young men expressing themselves through that time period and not judging them as much. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not, it's not perfect. And and there's still a lot of space for that to grow. I do think adult men are, I, well, I think men of all ages are struggling. You know, the highest suicide rate is, white males over the age of 45 in this country and the suicide rate for young men is, is usually six times the rate of young women at all ages, Uh, but our highest suicide rates are adults, not kids. We, we talk about kids and, and we try to prevent suicide in kids, but they have one of the lowest actual rates of suicide of all ages. And so I think it's going to require a lot of different effort and steps to normalize males talking about their feelings. I don't agree with people who say they don't know how, I think it's more of an issue of their situations where they're comfortable and they're not. And most men are comfortable expressing emotion at a wedding, a funeral, and then like at a sporting event. Mm -hmm. But when it's intimate, one-on-one or, you know, in a relationship, um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what sexual orientation you are like that. Uh, that's where it's harder. That's where it seems to kind of get shut down.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. in those moments and, and those are, arguably the more important moments i mean yeah sure feel what you're feeling when you're uh, at a wedding or at a sporting event or or whatnot uh, i mean I've, i punched a wall when the yankees lost a series i'm not proud um but uh, <laughs> it's <just sad>. um, <laughs> the thing uh, is that um the uh the wall won by the way for the record the wall definitely won it usually um, does <laughs> usually, yeah it usually does, does. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That was the first and last time. Well, yeah, I think so. Um but uh the um uh yeah, that is uh, that is beautifully put. And and so those moments that we try to have conversations with each other. I think these are moments where I'm fortunate that I have a I have a friend group from home and there is there's five or six of us and and we've been pretty open and honest with some of the things that we're dealing with right and one of my one of my buddies came out and said hey my we just found out my son's got autism um and another one's got a, a kid with this and another kid with that or they they themselves are struggling with x y and z and and we have built this kind of beautiful relationship uh amongst a group of men but I don't know I don't think that happens in every friend group. Right. And I I love what you put earlier where, you know, I, I I like to say that I was taught to be kind to everybody else at a very young age. And I was taught to be kind to myself around the age of 35. Right. And so that's 30 years of unlearning. I'm trying to do, like you mentioned, Uh, we're trying to unpack our adolescence as an adult. Um, And the, uh, I wonder how do you think those conversations can start? I mean, you started them. You started conversations yeah. like that with others from a young age. But like, what does it take? And this is—I mean, it's not just a male problem, um, because I mean, women have been known to have very surface-level conversations with each other as well, where the, the the tone gets higher and higher. I know, right? I know, um, right? I'm fine. And so, like, you know, we've we've been a part of those conversations as men and women um, and and non-binary folks. And so the thing is, is that what does it look like to have a relationship that you can start that conversation? Like, I mean, who's supposed to make the first move? What's supposed to happen? Like, because we're also taught that vulnerability can push each other. Like I was taught by my counselor. There's a friend of mine who, who recently hurt me. And I wanted to kind of come out and be like, listen, this happened. And here's the story I'm telling myself. And I want to hit with the I statements and whatnot. And, and she was like, I don't know if your friendships there yet. She's like, and so maybe don't come with all that vulnerability because that may push them away further. And I'm like, this is so confusing. Right. And and so I'd be curious to hear some of your thoughts on that of like, what is initiating those conversations or getting more comfortable with having those conversations look like?
1: Well, you know, it's uh it starts with what do you want to connect around? You know, mm. and for a lot of guys the reason it's easy to keep friendship surface level is because most male friendships are revolving around making fun of each other or, uh, you know, kind of burning each other or you doing external that. things, <laughs> <laughs> but we do it's, it's doing external things. It's yeah. watching a, a, a game or playing a sport or doing something like that. I think that, you can't make people do something they don't want to do. And you'd have to connect with someone to say like, well what what do you want someone to know about you? Like I I have gender conversations with my high school students. And we separate students who identify as male, students who identify as female, students who identify as non-binary and then we just have conversations about like what's going on. And that process of guys having their friendship revolve around roasting each other starts in middle school, uh, just like a natural process. So th- there has to be an impetus. Like I can't connect further. I want to share what's going on with me. How you do that is going to be different for every person, Yeah. but because the stereotype of guys wanting to fix things or like addressing it quicker Uh, When guys do bring up those emotions, if they do have that strength, if they do have that desire, it does tend to build connections in their friendships even further. But I think the question of how is not as important as the question as as why and what are you trying to do? And there are a lot of guys out there who, who don't know the answers to that. Yeah. And their friendships or their communication in that friendship is going to be even more complicated because they're not they're not sure what they want and there's many ways to do it. There's many ways to answer the how. But th- there's a deeper aspect in there that that doesn't get addressed from that shell, from that I'm going to shut down now perspective.
0: Yeah 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 for sure the walls are going up no no uh yeah
1: right so i could give you a meme version you know what i mean i could be like identify what you want to talk about and then find someone you trust and then tell it in a chronological order and then you know express uh your emotions about the event and that could be extremely successful and i'm not mocking it by saying it's like in that voice um But I just think a lot of guys don't know where to begin. And then they tend to begin when it's at a breaking point. And unfortunately for a lot of guys,
0: it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. And and at that point, We've also gotten so good at uh, at 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 uh, diving into our coping mechanisms, whether they are good or bad. Uh, they uh, that sometimes we're so deep into those coping mechanisms that we don't know how to get out of it, um, and we don't know another way, and uh, we only see uh, we only see one way. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, are we? You've done more research on this than I have. Are we seeing a any shift in those numbers for suicide rates, or um, like are they uh, as far as uh, as far as the numbers of men that are doing it? Is it less? Is it more? Is it is it similar to what the way it's always been? More, is it a flat graph?
1: There are more men seeking help now than there ever have been before. Mm. The suicide rate in this country continues to climb. No. We don't know if that is because now that suicide is more aware, people are actually being honest about how people died. We don't know if it's uh, going up because of forces that are out of the control of a, of a PSA. You know, um, yeah. There's more suicide awareness campaigns today than there ever has been. And the suicide rate is higher. But there's so many other factors that go into that. Like, look, there are more campaigns about obesity and, you know, diabetes than ever before, but obesity and diabetes are at the highest rates ever. And you can't point to that and say, like, that's because there's no public health campaign. Like (laughs) diabetes and obesity have so many other factors that play into it. That you can't just say like, oh, we haven't done a good enough job educating people. It's the same thing with mental health. Like the biology, the environment, the socioeconomic status, all of those things are huge in in mental health statistics. And so I don't look at the statistics around suicide as being like the ultimate measure of if men are talking about their emotions more. Right. You know, I think more men seeking help is a is a positive step there are many steps in this in this in this staircase
0: yeah no for sure it is huge i think I and mean, we see more celebrities talking about it as well uh and uh i mean social media itself is a place where uh people are talking about it more because i mean sometimes it's easier to yell into the abyss than it is to tell a friend uh and and whatnot and so uh, it is slowly becoming more normalized and and I agree and I appreciate the the subtle pushback that the suicide numbers aren't necessarily what matters, but the, what what matters more is how many people are seeking help. Um, I'm not saying that those numbers don't matter, but you know what I mean uh, and of so course. yeah yeah, that's powerful. Uh, so Ross I, I, uh, <laughs> this conversation is one that I wish more men would have. Right and and talking about it and I I I also really respect the pushback of it's not necessarily um, the why that matters it's it's sometimes it's the how or sometimes the when and some of the the what right that matters as well and one thing that we know about men um, is is frequently. Uh, what is said is that, you know, men like to have conversations shoulder to shoulder instead of face to face. And and some of the deepest conversations I've had with fellow men are, you know, on a long drive um, and kind of in those moments. Or, you know, if we, if we are sharing a cigar, it's not like we're sitting across from each other blowing smoke at one another. Right. Like we're, we're figuring out which way the wind's going and we're sitting in, in a way so that we're not getting it on each other and we're not necessarily facing each other. Um, and there are some ways to. I think there are some ways to, to create environments that do mm-hmm. make some individuals feel a little bit more comfortable. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just asking the next question, right? A lot of times mm-hmm. we're, uh, you know, someone hits you with the, I'm fine. You're like, all right, they're fine. They're fine. Here we go. Keep them moving over here. What do you think about the game? Uh, right. But instead, you know, sometimes it's the courage of asking one more question or just get, you're getting a little bit deeper just to see. Right. And I think, I feel that a lot of times for me, when I think about when I share or don't share, a lot of it has to do with, am I about to burden this person or not? Right? Like Mm. I have, should I just carry something? And like, you know, you got yourself into it. You got to get yourself out of it. Don't burden them. Um, right. And don't bring them into your thing or, or wait a little bit until you're a little bit further and you can present more of a, a solution or a, here's what I'm going to do as opposed to uh, in that moment of like, I'm kind of lost, I'm flailing and I don't know what to do. Right. Like in those uh-huh. moments, I feel like I'm putting it on to somebody and making them carry my shit. And Sure. The Fear of being a burden, I think, is a fear that is not uncommon. And I don't know how to get individuals uh, to to recognize that your great friends never see you as a burden, um, right? They see it as a privilege that they get to spend time with you. Um, and so, like, they want to be there with you. They've invested the time. And this is another way that they can invest in you. Um, but a lot of times friendships don't get there. Like you said, like like a lot of male friendships are kind of they're about the thing. They're not about uh they're not mm-hmm. about the individuals or the person. Now, are you noticing right. that as well? And kind of that fear of being a burden in many many. Yeah,
1: and that has become one of the biggest reasons that like young people share that they don't talk about their mental health of all genders. They're like, I don't want to burden anyone, everyone's going through something. Yeah. I think the the step for yeah, For men in general, it just has to be, uh, you know, kind of identifying or thinking about what you would want to hear from your own friend. Like if your friend shared with you that they were going through a divorce or that they don't know how to take care of their kids or that they are really worried or that, you know, that they um, miss people. You wouldn't be like, yo, man, that's too much. I can't hear that right now. That is a burden. <laughs> yeah. So I think like a, ch- a good check is, would I be burdened if my friend told me this? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. chances are you, you wouldn't. And so it is that like kind of self-compassion piece. Like how can I treat myself more like a friend? How can I understand that, uh, you know, my friends can handle things and um, I'm not – overwhelming them because uh it is hard to know it's hard to have insight it's hard to be sure especially when you're if you've never talked about emotion and now you're trying it it's it's all brand new but it it is a good check in with yourself to be like okay how would how would i react if my friend was going through a rough time i'd want to know i'd Mm want to be able to support them
0: yeah that's a great check uh if 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 I was able to if I was able to do that more times, and I'm, I'm going back through periods of my life where it's like, yeah, I really wish I asked myself that question uh, because there are times where I needlessly carried things. I mean, I did that, as yeah. you know, you know, you and I had a really powerful mm-hmm. conversation as I was going through my divorce. Um, and, and that mm-hmm. was a lot of it was that I was just carrying it because I didn't have a solution. I didn't have anything. It was just something that was wrong and I couldn't talk about it. So I didn't talk about it because I didn't want to, if it was nothing, I didn't want to make it something. and, and 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 whatnot, but it turns out it was it's something. It's always something as much as we try to tell ourselves it's not, right and and so uh, in that moment, you know, I wonder if I had had uh, those kind of conversations with folks where as you know if they wanted if they were going to tell me this, how would I feel about it? right? Would I feel like they were burdening me or not? I wonder if I would have talked to some more folks. I, I really love that uh, that reframe. that's that's incredible.
1: Well, and I, you know, look, I think the main reasons men don't talk about emotions are they feel embarrassed. They feel ashamed. They feel weak. They feel stupid. No. They feel like their problems should just go away on their own. They don't want to burden other people. Like you said, they don't know who they can trust. And, you know, all of those barriers have different ways to get broken down or reworked or done differently. And, um, I think one of the most powerful things we can do is compare mental health to physical health and normalize mental health for men and help break down those barriers from a a younger age. Like the reality is the patriarchy doesn't benefit men either. And we're in a place where it's strange because you're like, uh, you do benefit from this patriarchy, but you also have emotional pain and we need to make you more comfortable expressing that emotional pain in this system. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's layered. It's not as easy as like, you have feelings. Talk about them. It's, it's, it's yeah. really layered.
0: Mm-hmm. As Macklemore once wisely said, there's layers to the shit player. Tiramisu. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ross, was actually a huge Macklemore fan. That's a fun fact about him that he would, doesn't like to. My admit gosh,
1: publicly. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> we're quoting macklemore where is the oh there is a there is a leave studio button, there is a leave studio button. <laughs> it's just oh, a button shoot. i don't even have to get i don't even have to get no. up i can just yeah, leave no. studio yeah. uh, my soul my soul left the second you mentioned macklemore my physical body was still here my physical body
0: could leave with the leave studio button. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? There it is. There it is. We keep options here in the diner. Uh, <laughs> eject buttons for all. Ross, this is such a powerful conversation, and uh, and I really appreciate you having it. And you know, it's it's also interesting because it is a serious conversation. It's a serious matter. But I also think, and this is something that you do really well on stage at doing, um, but I also think we need to figure out a way to talk about it with levity. um, Because I think Mm -hmm. that's another way to bring more folks into the conversation. It always feels like as soon as we bring up anything, it's like, all right, well, hang on a second. We got to shift our tone and lean in, Uh, right? Like there is there is power and humor in everything right humor lowers our walls um, and and that's why i mean I'm, I'm always grateful for comedians for saying things that other people feel um and sure there's some times where they cross the line um, but they get people talking right and they and they start conversations and uh, i think there is there's a place for humor in mental health conversations. Uh, it is one that is not is not a line that we should flood and cross over all the time. Um, but I think there has to be a place for us to laugh, um, and it it, it it's. Laughter is where joy is, and, and, and joy is a beautiful emotion for us to feel. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from the wise old sage Anonymous. Um, and Anonymous says that happiness is a place that you can visit and the smartest people go there often, right? But happiness is only a place that you can visit and the smartest people go there often. And and, and so finding laughter in a lot of these conversations is important, uh, mm-hmm. and so uh and you do a really great job at that, like I mentioned from the stage, but I understand why we come into it with the weight that we do because it deserves mm-hmm. the weight, but it also deserves levity. And I don't know where that balance falls and how we have that conversation, right? As you're talking about teaching, uh, as you're talking about teaching teachers, training trainers about this, as we talk yeah. about men wanting to have conversations with other men, it's like, do we go back to bashing each other? But they're like, yeah, but not really, bro. You're good. Right? Like, you know, there's, there's something, <laughs> there's something in there. And I don't know the role that humor can, play but i feel like it has to play a role what do you think
1: i, I think humor helps uh disarm people it helps them feel more comfortable and you know unfortunately a lot of guys are only comfortable talking about emotion when their walls have been broken down which happens when they're drunk or high or, or something like that right and uh the humor element is great as long as you're laughing you know, with someone, not at the expense of them. So Mm -hmm. there've been many times where I've been with dudes where I've expressed a lot of emotions and kind of laughed at myself or laughed at the, the situation, but not lost my dignity or pride in it. Mm -hmm. And the, the roasting each other, relationship that the young, that men have with each other often, you know, can escalate quickly and and kind of diminish the meaningful emotion that was expressed. And so, man, it's, it's tough to kind of walk that line, but in my presentation, when I make jokes, it's often uh, self-deprecating in a way that doesn't diminish my story. Um, And I think that's a, that's a important element.
0: Yes. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, self-deprecation uh is 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 an art form in order to use it productively. Uh and uh, and and most people do not. Uh and I know I for a very long time and still to this day from time to time do not use it productively and and I'm not getting laughs I'm getting groans. Uh and, right. and it's a, making everybody a little more uncomfortable. <laughs> and so yeah, well, no. Yeah. And
1: now as a dad, when Rome gets older, it, like he'll just hold on to all of it. I, I, I always am amazed at what men have held on to from what their dads have said. And you know that the dad doesn't remember ever saying it. But it's like the crutch a <laughs> son bears forever. And like yeah. the dad probably was just like passing by and slightly mentioned something, and the kid was like, I will avenge you. <laughs> yeah right and then later you know you bring it back up to your dad and he's like i don't i don't know what you're talking about and you're like this Uh, is all i thought about for 15 years
0: yeah (laughs) Yeah, no go ahead you're gonna say something yeah i mean i have a friend who is uh who, who came out to her father, uh, a a while ago. And, and the father handled it uh, quite well, uh, with, you know, with a a good amount of compassion. And, and, uh, and then at the end of the conversation, he was just like, but just don't ever buzz your hair or cut it real short, right? I don't want you to look like a, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and so like, that was the line, despite how compassionate the rest of the conversation was, that was the line that stuck. And, and my Mm -hmm. friend wanted to cut their hair, Uh, for the past however many years but it's like well my dad said this and uh and like you know had to wind up having a conversation and the dad was like i didn't like that was like a joke at the end of our conversation of just like or whatnot but it was something right exactly what you said where it's like held on to it and uh yeah it is it's it is fascinating and yeah yeah yeah. maybe the most horrifying piece of uh of fatherhood for me because uh your boy's quick and witty out here ross
1: <laughs> yeah quick and witty with dad jokes
0: you know yeah, the dad jokes sure. are
1: uh well and now you're dad so now they're appropriate
0: perfect yeah yeah exactly now yeah now i have an excuse before it was just sad uh... <laughs> uh, i love it brother ross i love talking to you man and uh i just appreciate your wisdom and uh your ability to your ability to have conversations about hard things is incredible, and and your ability to 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 really simplify it, right? Like I heard about this uh, these uh, these doctoral students over in England. They were chemistry doctoral students, and one of the things they had to do before they were able to pass their defense is that they had to go and talk to a group of fifth graders about why their research mattered. And they had to be able to tell these individuals that like these fifth graders, seventh graders or or whatnot, right. essentially middle schoolers. um, And, uh, and they, they had to tell them why it mattered and they had to be able to simplify it. And, that's how I often feel about the way that you speak about mental health. You make it extremely attainable, approachable, um, and and the way that you, you pass out tools that anybody can use. And I just really respect the hell out of you for doing that, man, because uh, it is a gift uh, to talk about something this important and that approachable of a nature. And uh, I just wanted to say that I admire you for that, brother.
1: Well, thanks, man. I I really admire uh, you for so many reasons too. Your leadership and your vulnerability and your your boldness and being like, hey, we're gonna have these conversations. I'm gonna start these things. I have this idea. Let's do it. And uh, you have a curiosity about you for human connection and for just survival and life that is a voice that's needed in these times because uh you know spin a wheel pick an issue and we are in the heat of it uh and so you know having a platform and creating a platform and you know marrying up all of those things are uh (laughs) really important skills to have that uh that not a lot of people take the time to do so you know your your voice and platform and Perspective and insights on the the world are are beyond needed right now.
0: Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, and that is the only reason I complimented you. So thank you for saying that. Uh, and. <laughs> <laughs> no, brother, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you for kicking it with me in the diner, Ross. Uh, I miss the meals that we have uh, that we have not had the opportunity to share uh, like we normally do. I normally see you at least two, three times, maybe four times a year. And uh, even if it's at some random hotel in Indianapolis, I look forward to them. And, uh, and brother, uh, I miss you, man. And thank you for the work that you're doing. And thanks for kicking it with me in the diner. I miss you too, man. Have a good, have a good night. All right, brother. You too. You too. Y'all that was my man, Ross Zabo kicking it in the diner, dude dropping truth and also practical ways to start conversations. And can we talk about the work that he is doing impacting the way mental health education could actually become a thing in uh grade schools in the united states or maybe even beyond uh incredibly beautiful work from an incredibly beautiful man no literally he's very attractive look up a picture of him uh super excited that ross came through the diner today and my friends i'm excited that you joined us as well thanks for sliding in the booth and kicking it and until next time that we connect my friends keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions you all take care be well Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. (laughs) If you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, (laughs) come on now, you're gonna make me blush. (laughs) Also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject i'm james t robo all over the internet i post meaningful content on instagram witty content on twitter let's get connected in some other places folks and as always if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight please check out the show notes my friends until next time keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions y'all take care